So that was your sermon for this morning. And I'm just going to talk at you for a little bit. Thank you so much, Mindy. All right, I'm going to ask you to do something that usually we do in church, but we try to do it on the down low, but I'm just going to give you free reign to do it. Look around and see who's at church this morning. And acknowledge the fact that some people are here for the first time. Some people, this is their first time back in church after years of not being in the physical space. And there are hundreds of people who aren't in the room with us today, and yet they are with us virtually in spirit. They are the church. For them, it might be their first time clicking on that YouTube link, or maybe this is their third church service attending for the day. But what this means is that at this moment, we are a brand new church. We have never been this church before. And so let us celebrate the fact that we are in community with one another, new, together, whole. Let us pray. Lord, open our hearts and our minds so that as your scripture is read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with deep and abiding joy what you have to say to us this day. Surprise us, transform us, convert us again to the good news, the best news of the gospel. This we pray in the name of the one who saves, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our scripture reading for today comes from the gospel according to Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 3 and 11 to 32. We're not going to put the scripture on the screen so that you can read it. We want you to imagine it, listen to it, embed yourselves in it with us this day. So hear now God's word for you today. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would have gladly filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? And here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands." So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and he kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. 
Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they begin to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then the elder brother became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen, for all these years, I have been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your, pro your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost, and now he has found. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Regardless of what biblical translation you use, chances are that if you were to open your Bible right now to Luke chapter 15, verse 11, it would be preceded by a title or a section heading. And in the case of our passage for today, most translations will read as follows, the parable of the prodigal son. Now, it is important to note that these section headings were not a part of the original biblical text, but were added as a way to help and guide us, the modern reader. But sometimes these headings can be too helpful. They cast spotlights on certain characters, point us to the destination before we have even arrived. They make us think that all you need to do is read the passage in order to understand its meaning. But as we have seen throughout this Lent, that is rarely, if ever, the case. After all, Jesus never really makes it easy for the listener, does he? He speaks in puzzles and parables. He talks in circles instead of straight lines. He always leaves so much, too much, to the imagination. If he were speaking these words today, he would have zero followers on Twitter. No one would bother to quote or repost his teachings or his sayings. He might even be diagnosed or dismissed as a madman. But his bizarre methods were ultimately brilliant because they demand our undivided, our uncomforted, our unassuming attention. In Jesus' classroom, there are no prize students or right answers. There are just those with ears to hear, eyes to see, and minds to be transformed over and over and over again. And so we come to this holy text asking ourselves, what is Jesus saying to us today? What can we learn from the parable of the prodigal son? First, we must acknowledge the reason why and the audience for whom this parable was told. You see, our beloved Jesus had developed quite the reputation for hanging out with the wrong kind of people. 
those with questionable morals, those who were least likely to be found within the temple walls, the non-religious, unchurched, not chosen ones. So I guess it's no surprise that those who were religious and churched and chosen were not happy about his taste in friends, whispering behind Jesus' back saying, this guy embraces sinners and hangs out with them. But in typical Jesus fashion, he does not respond in kind with more gossip or snap judgments, but instead he draws his critics towards him in conversation using not one, but three stories. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. A trilogy of stories about that which was lost and now is found, a sheep, a coin, a son. And in the latter story, we are confronted with three distinct characters, each disturbing and unnerving in their own right. First, character number one, the younger son, AKA the prodigal. Now this kid is too much. I mean the nerve, the gall, the greed. Even before his dear old dad is on his deathbed, this son has the audacity to demand his inheritance early, up front, and in full. Why? So he could get out of town as far away from his family and his home as possible and use the profits made from selling his land to party with prostitutes. He is every parent's worst nightmare. He could care less about bringing shame to the family name or reputation. After all, pleasure is his purpose in life. Freedom is his mission. And a life with no rules and responsibilities is his reward. Meanwhile, toiling away in the fields is character number two, the older son, or as the Reverend Dr. Tom Elson refers to, the Presbyterian son. <laughs> Not as a commentary on any of us, of course, but because the word Presbyterian comes from the Greek word for elder. You gotta admit. The similarities are striking because while the prodigal son is out squandering his inheritance in the world, the, the older son is working diligently to keep his inheritance by staying as close to his father as possible, which makes him every parent's dream child. He takes his role as the elder son seriously. He welcomes the opportunity to one day take over the family business. After all, duty is his purpose in life, responsibility is his mission, and a life of hard-earned dignity and righteous indignation is his reward. Then, of course, there is character number three, the father. A man of obvious wealth who has developed a bad habit of doing the unthinkable. Case in point, after his youngest son all but tells him to his face that he wishes he was dead by asking for his inheritance early, the father responds by doing the unthinkable and says, yes. And then when that son has the audacity to return home after blowing his entire nest egg doing things not fit to discuss at the dinner table, the father again does the unthinkable. He welcomes him home. 
He sees his son approaching from afar, runs through the streets to greet his son and embraces him even before an apologetic word or explanation departs his lip. Unthinkable. Then if that wasn't enough, he orders the finest apparel and the juiciest calf to be prepared for a party thrown in honor of the homecoming of his derelict son without bothering to send word to his dutiful son who was out sweating it in the fields. He is the parent every parent strives not to be. He obviously didn't read any of the books about boundaries or enabling or family systems because respectful or not, obedient or not, righteous or not, faithful or not, his sons are his purpose in life. Their welfare is his mission, and just being with them is his reward. Who knew that the perfect formula for a timeless story included just three characters? a prodigal, a Presbyterian, and a parent who loves them both. Like the parable of the Good Samaritan, the story from Luke 15 has nested deep inside our individual and collective psyche. So familiar, in fact, that we might be tempted not to engage it or question it. But as we read it today, let us consider anew what this story is really about. Is it about repentance and humility, acceptance and love, forgiveness and grace? To put it another way, is the appropriate title for this story the parable of the prodigal son or something else entirely? And if so, what should the title be? What is this story really about? Or rather, rather, who is this story really about? Now, these questions are not new to those of us who gathered at this past week's Lunch and Lent Bible study. In fact, our discussion and our wrestling informed this entire sermon. Together, we spent considerable time dissecting each character. We deliberated over the meaning and the moral of this story. We batted around alternate titles for this story. And at what point, I confess that I actually don't know what the word prodigal means outside of this story. And I wasn't the only one. And so, as a group, we engage in a cutting-edge, modern, exegetical practice known as Googling. We Googled the word prodigal. Prodigal, an adjective that means wastefully extravagant, recklessly generous, lavishly abundant. Nobody likes a prodigal because a prodigal upsets our prudent and appropriate ways of doing things. A prodigal ignores our socially accepted norms about getting what we deserve and what we are owed. A prodigal disrupts our sense of fairness and parity and even justice, which means that the real prodigal in this story is not the son, it's the father the prodigal father who was wastefully extravagant with his mercy and grace, the prodigal father who was recklessly generous with his inheritance and favor, the prodigal father who was lavishly abundant with his love and affection. 
But as we see in the response of the elder son and the grumbling of the scribes and the Pharisees and the visceral reaction so many of us feel when we hear this story, this kind of extravagance, this kind of generosity, this kind of abundance does not compute. It does not make sense. It disrupts who we are, why we are, how we are to our very core. Why? Because we live in a world of scarcity where there are always winners and losers a first place and a second place, a pie where the size of one person's piece takes away from the size of another's. In light of that reality, we can't help but employ earthly mathematics on a heavenly equation. We impose a scarcity mentality on an abundant God. And just like that, and just like the elder son in this parable, we become slaves in our own homes. We spend our lives earning an inheritance that is already ours. We are so enraged over the sins of the prodigal son that we are incapable of enjoying the gifts of the prodigal father. We assume that there is not enough to go around, that we are not enough as we are, and in doing so, we place limits on an unlimited God. But as Luke 15 shows us, in the Father's house, there is abundance. In the Father's house, every door remains wide open. In the Father's house, everyone is an honored guest, no matter what they have done. In the Father's house, everyone has a seat at the table, no matter who they are. Because in the Father's house, everyone is worth saving. Everyone is worth forgiving. Everyone is worth loving. And just because it does not make sense does not mean that it is not true. Because that right there, simply put, is the good news of the gospel. But do not be fooled, my friends. Just because we say this word a lot does not mean that we have figured it out. That we will ever figure it out. The gospel was meant to disrupt us every way imaginable. Because just when we think we understand the scope of God's love, the limits of its reach, the bounds of its welcome, that is when Jesus disrupts us. Jesus surprises us. Jesus confounds us. Jesus might even anger us with just how much he wants us all, how far he is willing to go, just how prodigal his love really is. All so we can be at home with him. So why Jesus? Because Jesus will disrupt us as many times as it takes for us to finally get it through our thick skulls that he loves us, period. Regardless of the bad that we have done or the good that we have done, Jesus loves us. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves all of humanity so much that it makes no sense. That is why Jesus. So friends, in one week's time, we will find ourselves at the final leg of our Lenten journey. One week from now on Palm Sunday, we will journey with Jesus to Jerusalem. 
On Monday, Thursday, we will feast at the table with our beloved and his disciples. On Good Friday, we will weep and we will mourn and we will cry out to God while our Messiah is nailed to a cross. And on Easter Sunday, we will rejoice and we will sing and we will, we will celebrate the risen one. For so many of us, this road is well-traveled. We know the songs, we know the rhythms, we know the movements of Holy Week, but my hope and my prayer is that in the midst of it, you are able to see just how ridiculous it is. My hope and prayer is that you are disrupted in your being. My hope and prayer is that you remember that every word that Jesus uttered, every act he committed, every sacrifice he made, he did because he loves you. He loves us. He loves humanity. And there's nothing, nothing you could ever do to change that. All we have to do is join the celebration.